Good morning. Good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 23 through 29 today. If you're new here with us, come for the first time. We're so glad that you're here. We've been in this uh, study, the book of Galatians, which is our habit just to study books of the Bible, kind of go through them sequentially so that we learn the full counsel of God's Word so that we're, uh, yeah, so that we're growing in Christ. It always strikes me. I always think, it's, you realize how weird a thing it is to be a Christian sometimes that like we decide to get together once a week and listen to somebody talk to us and sing. There are not many groups of people that get together every week just to sing other than choirs, right? And it's like, so just recognize that we look strange, I think, to the surrounding world. So you get together and you just sing stuff and then you listen to someone talk and it, who wants to go listen to the same person talk week after week? Unless we're receiving from God's word, that's the only thing that makes it valuable. Right, is that God's word teaches and instructs. And that's why we come together, to be instructed by God's word, to declare the praises of God, because he evokes worship from us, doesn't he? Now, by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and every week there's a lot of us who are, and then there's some of us who are not. So we, we're glad you're here. And the thing I would encourage you is, if you come somewhat regularly, just take very seriously the idea that there's a group of people who don't think about themselves, come together to, and just sing in the belief that there's a real God who really hears them, and that he's worthy of their praises, worthy of their affection, I would just encourage you, I think it's one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of the gospel, is the worship of God's own people. So uh, people of God keep singing full-throated praises to God. It's a testimony to who he is. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, just maybe consider that, weigh that. Like, who else draws, evokes that kind of response from people? So as we're following along in Galatians, I was thinking about this week. Last week, we were talking about what is the purpose of the law, and I'm going to touch on that again here in a moment, but this week, we come to this um, passage where what Paul wants to do is he wants to compare, really contrast, actually, life under the law versus life in Christ, and I was thinking about it this way. I wonder, don't raise your hand. Uh, I wonder how many of us have dated someone for a while, and then after a while realized that they weren't the one for us, uh, wasn't a good fit, and so we, we broke it off, and there were things about the relationship that just, it wasn't working, maybe things about them that were just like not for us, and we broke it off, but then after breaking it off, we kind of idealized the relationship. Anybody prone to do that? You idealize, well, you look back at it, and you go, oh, you're nostalgic about it, and we used to have so much fun, and that person was really this way or that way, and then we get back together with that person when we really should never have done that, and then after, a, what, a month or so, we go, you know what? I remember why we broke up in the first place. Now, some of you are thinking like, yeah, I did that and I married that person. I'm not saying your relationship is doomed. I'm glad you're married. Good job, all right? But you can imagine, if you can, like if you've had that experience, which, as I have, where you, you break up with someone, you go back and you're like, uh, now I realize why we broke up in the first place. That's kind of what Paul is getting at. The Galatians are a group of people who have gone out from underneath the law as a means of justification. They were in a relationship with the law. And they were like, we we're gonna get right with God by keeping all the rules. And then they came to Christ and they realized like, oh, I can't get right with God by keeping all the rules. I'm in a relationship with him. He's the one that makes me right. It's just by faith alone. But what Paul is saying to them is you've kind of gone back into this old relationship. There's this group of people that are telling you you need to follow the law and keep the law in order to be right with God in addition to believing in Jesus, and you're believing them. And in doing that, you're, I mean, how much worse when you're exiting, you're in some sense saying, I've got this new relationship that is alive and good and holy and righteous, and I'm going back into this old relationship. That's essentially what Paul is addressing, and he wants to show them the failures and the flaws of the old relationship, life under the law, 
in comparison with this new relationship, life in Christ. And so that's the comparison we're gonna find today in our text. Uh, if you remember, what we saw was that life under the law or what the purpose of the law was, Paul having answered that, he said, the law was there to trap you in your sin and reveal to you that you needed a savior. You needed someone to save you from your own imprisonment. And Christ came in and he did that. So stop living like you're under the law. Stop going back. And that's essentially what he wants to instruct you and I in. This group of believers he's writing to is not unlike you and I, who from time to time find ourselves falling back into this mindset where we are functionally, if not intentionally, functionally saying to God, I, I'm right with you based upon my performance. It's what we call legalism. It's I'm justified with you, I'm right with you based on what I do. I don't do right things because I'm right with you. I do them to get right with you. And when that mindset creeps in and what it creates is a church full of people who are harsh and not gracious and not loving and rule-based rather than led by the spirit and full of life and joy and peace and hope, and kindness and graciousness towards sinners. And we aim to be a church that is not that. Would we agree with that? So let's look at this contrast between life under the law and life in Christ. Let's read Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29. He says this, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's our text for today. It divides up really uh, easily. The first two verses are about life under the law, and the last set of verses is about life in Christ. And so that's what I simply want to talk to you about today. A couple of observations about life under the law and life in Christ. I want to spend longer on the life in Christ part uh, because we spent a good bit of time last week on the purpose of the law and life under the law. But there's a couple of things here that are worth acknowledging. So let's talk about this idea of life under the law first. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that the prepositions themselves matter. So the details of the text always matter. Paul could have said, you are under the law and then you are under Christ. And he wouldn't have been wrong to say you're under Christ. And that when we come to him, are we under his authority, church? Yeah, do we follow his lead? Do we want to obey his commands? Yes, to all of that but he's very intentional to use these two prepositions. You were under the law, and now you are, what was the preposition? In Christ. Because he wants to convey a contrast. To be under something is to be pressed down by it, to be subjugated to it, to feel its weight upon you. To be in something, in Christ, is to be invited to belong, to be ushered in. It's hospitality, it's welcoming. It's receiving. Do you see the distinction? That's the first thing I want you to see here in the language of the text is that he's painting a contrast by the very prepositions he uses. He's saying you were under the law, but now you are in Christ. It's ever the law. To be under the law 
is to have its weight be upon us always. It is ever present. The thing you need to understand about the law is that it never lets up. If you're going to try to get right with God based upon the written code, following the rules, those rules never stop being in effect. They always demand of you perfection. There can never be a moment, never a second, never a blink of an eye where your mind is not right, your heart is not right, and your actions are not right. You must be perfect. You must cross every T and dot every I. It is an excruciating weight. And when you and I return to functionally trying to get, be right with God under the law, we are essentially saying, I want to take that weight back on. There's a pride in us that says, I can obey it, I can do it. But friends, can you really? Life under the law is heavy and burdensome and it demands perfection. There's never a moment where you fail to perform something in perfect obedience, whether in your heart, attitude, your mind's action, or your actual actions, there is never a moment where you come up a little bit short of the standard and the law says, it's okay, it's fine. We'll let that one go. The law always demands, therefore it always crushes. Life under the law is a life of always striving and never achieving. That's what life under the law is. Under, not in. Now there's two pictures that Paul paints here about life under the law. And I, I'm gonna hit this next one quickly because it's basically what we talked about all week last week, okay? When he says we are imprisoned by the law. So look down again at verse 23 and just think about life under the law. I really need you, followers of Jesus, I need you to remember what life under the law was like. Whether you came to Jesus at seven or 70, I need you to remember what life under the law was like because you were under it. You weren't born into Christ. You were born separated from God and outside of Christ. And he redeemed you. I don't know at what age, at what point, but remember what this was like. So in verse 23, he says this, now before faith came, meaning before Jesus came, the object of our faith, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So his first visual image that he wants to strike us with about life under the law is that it's a prison. And this is exactly what we talked about last week when we talked about the purpose of the law. We called it the second use of the law, theologians call it. And it just is this, that the law is like walking into a room full of mirrors that shows us our sin and traps us in. It shows us our need for a savior. So the purpose of the law was not to redeem. It wasn't to make us righteous. It was to show us our need for righteousness and our inability to accomplish it. So the law imprisons us in three ways. It imprisons us by revealing our sin to us showing it to us over and over and over again. You will never come to the law and not be shown your insufficiency. You will see it over and over and over. It imprisons us by trapping us in the penalty for our sin. So we are guilty and we are trapped under the punishment that we deserve. And then lastly, it doesn't just show it to us, reveal it. It doesn't just imprison, it actually increases it. That's what we saw in Romans 5.20 last week. The, the, the law was given to increase the trespass Paul said in Romans 5, verse 20. What he meant by that is what our wicked hearts do when they encounter God's standard is instead of going, oh man, I should obey that. They go, something in us says, you can't tell me what to do. And it takes that, that very command, like Paul used the example in Romans 7 of coveting. Don't covet. And we say, oh, oh yeah? And our wicked hearts say, I'm gonna do it in increasing measure. I'm gonna do more of it. 
and it increases our sinfulness. So the law traps us in that way. Does everybody, you with me? Does that make sense? Well, it traps us. It imprisons us. That's Paul's phrase. You want life under the law? It's life in prison. That's what it is. It's life trapped. Now, friends, can I just ask you for a moment, how do you think about people who are under the law? Because here's what I find happens for us as believers. We transition from life under the law to life in Christ, and we forget what it was like. And as a result, we lack sympathy. We treat people outside of Christ and under the law, we treat them as the enemy. We treat them often with very little regard or perhaps as our opponents. We think of them as antagonistic towards the church and sometimes they are. But is there not any tenderness in your heart? You were under the law. I was under the law. Shouldn't there be in us a tenderness towards those who are trapped? under the law. They may not even know it. They may come at us with slings and arrows. They may have very different political agendas and aims than you or I think are righteous and right. And yet is there no tenderness in us towards them? I would long for us to be a church so full of love for those under the law that we would say, come into Christ. Paul gives us a great example of this in Philippians chapter three, verse 18. He makes no bones about the fact that those who are outside of Christ are opponents of Christ. He says their God is their stomach. Their end is destruction. Dire warnings. I mean, serious, weighty stuff. He says they are opponents of the cross of Christ. In fact, they they actively oppose who Jesus is and what his purpose is on the world. But do you know what he said before he said all of that? I tell you now, even with tears that many live as opponents of the cross of Christ. Do you see the tenderness there? (laughs) I don't tell you, here's our opponents, let's go get them. I tell you, they are opponents of the cross of Christ. And I say it with tears in my eyes. I think that's a great demonstration of the heart that every Christian should have towards those trapped and imprisoned under the law. The next metaphor that he uses, the next picture that he paints with his words, other than being imprisoned, is that he uses the idea of a guardian. Did you see that in the text? Yeah? So last thing we want to learn about life under the law is from that analogy. He says, we were under a guardian. Now that word in the Greek is the word pedagogos. And what it means is it was a specific position that someone inhabited in the ancient Greek world. And they were the tutor and the disciplinarian of all young Greek boys. So when they were old enough to no longer be under a nurse, a nursemaid, they were handed off to this person called a pedagogos. Now, you and I might think of it as, you know, Miss Lackey, my wonderful third grade teacher who I look back with on affection. How many have a, a teacher you loved from early in your days? I sure hope so, all right? All our educators are saying, please raise your hand and tell me there was someone that you loved, right? Yeah, I loved Miss Lackey. She was the best. She used to come borrow this project that I did for her every year from my third grade year to my senior and give me a bag of M&Ms for it every year. She was the best. Miss Lackey was awesome. That is not what a pedagogos is. A pedagogos would have struck fear into the hearts of every Greek boy. When you thought about your pedagogos, you did not think about your kind, gentle Miss Lackey. You thought about the meanest, cruelest taskmaster that you had ever encountered. They struck fear in your heart because they would take you to task for every mistake 
everything you did wrong. They were there to be a vigilant watchdog over you at all times. Anytime you messed up or didn't receive instruction the right way, they came down hard on you. So when Paul says we were under a guardian, that is not quite English, does not get at what he's trying to paint as a picture there. He's not saying, yeah, yeah, the law was your guardian. It was this gentle, nice person that watched over you and protected you. He's saying, no, the law was a harsh taskmaster, always on you at every turn, always feeling the weight, always fearful, always with anxiety, always increasing in stress because it demanded perfection of you. And when you couldn't achieve it, it slammed you. When he says you were under a guardian until faith came, until Christ came, that's what he's saying. Not only were you in prison, you had a harsh driver of a taskmaster. That's life under the law. Think about, you know, the Greek myth of Sisyphus. Anybody? Yes, Sisyphus. Sisyphus, I don't remember what his crime was. He did something and Hades in Greek mythology doomed him to for eternity roll a rock up a hill to its peak, at which point it would roll back down the other side and Sisyphus would have to go down and push the rock up the hill for eternity. Always up, back down back down. That's why when we say something is a, is a, I can't even say the word, Sisyphian, Sisyphian task, we, you're all thinking, I can say that better than you can. Do it in a microphone, see how it goes for you. When we call something that word, we mean it's an impossible task. It's an impossible task. It can never be accomplished. It can never be done. That's what life under the law is constantly demanding, constantly pressing. Remember what that was like? It crushes you. But praise God for the turn in this text because we don't live under the law. We live life in Christ Jesus. So let me just real quickly, there's another question I wanna answer for you because as you're reading your Bible, I I wanna make sure you have clear categories. So just a quick little nugget here for you. You might read your Bible and you encounter places in the Old Testament, in particular like Psalm 19, where the law is described in these really glowing terms. So Psalm 19, verse 10, the law is described this way. David writing, he says, the law, the commandments of God are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now that sounds very different than how I just described the law to you. Would you agree? So what do I do when I'm reading my Bible and I go, whoa, 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 David, Trent told me that Paul said that the law was like a harsh taskmaster and it was there to imprison us in our sin so that we would see our need for a savior. How can David say it's sweeter than honey? It all depends on how you come to the law. So let me just real quickly knock this question out for you. You'll never have to ask it again. Kidding. I'm gonna help you, okay? So here's what he says. When Paul is talking about being in prison in the law, he's talking about if I come to the law in order to get right with God to be justified. If I'm not in Christ, if I'm under the law and I say, I'm gonna use the law and my obedience to it and my own ability to get right with God, then the law crushes you. David is writing as one who's been redeemed by God and restored and reconciled in relationship to him through a forward-looking faith by the grace of God. And having been restored by faith then, now the moral commands of God are no longer a harsh taskmaster that puts us in slavery. They are now life-giving sweeter than honey. The moral commands of God for those who don't look to them to get right with God, but say, because I have been made right with God by faith, 
Now his commands, they don't bear the weight of my salvation. They've been kept for me by Jesus. I believe. And now when I come to commands like don't murder, don't steal, don't gossip, don't covet, I don't look at that and go, oh, that's so weighty. I look at it and go, yes, I want to do that. And the spirit has been given to me to do it. So I find the commands of God now, the moral commands to be sweet like honey because they are an expression of his very nature. And I love him and I've been restored to him. Does that distinction make sense? That's why the law in one place, Psalm 19, can be painted as this sweeter than honey, sweeter than drippings from the honeycomb. And then Paul can come to it in Galatians and say, the law is a harsh taskmaster. The law imprisons you. It all depends on how you come to the law. Now, let's take the rest of our time and think about life in Christ, shall we? Everybody say amen to that. So there's four things that Paul points out about life in Christ. And we're gonna, each one could be a sermon unto itself, but we're gonna hit them all somewhat quickly because they're all here and therefore we need to focus on all of them. So verse 25 is where the text turns. And he says, after saying, in order that we might be justified by faith, in verse 24, then in verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under that harsh taskmaster, no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, here's the first thing, you are all sons of God through faith. So the first thing he wants us to focus on about life in Christ is that it makes you a child of God, that you are children of God. No longer, the contrast is the taskmaster. Who cares more for the well-being of a kid, their father or the harsh taskmaster who's their tutor? It's the father every time. Now, I didn't say this in the first verse, but I wanna say this here. I always wanna remind you with great tenderness that whenever we talk about the fatherhood of God, I know that some of you had really rough experiences of fatherhood through your earthly fathers. And I wanna remind you of something. Often, we let those experiences define our understanding of fatherhood. And what God's word wants to do is it wants to say, no, start with God as your father and let him define it. And wherever your earthly father came up short, because all of us who are earthly fathers do come up short of that, maybe in really egregious ways and maybe in, in lesser ways, but every earthly father comes up short. Don't look first at your earthly father to define fatherhood for you. That will, in some way, it's, it's, a, it's a wrong order. Because if you do that, then you come to God as well, however your father came up short, you're gonna assume that's who God is. But God defines fatherhood. Is that fair to say? Let him, start with him. Start with him, let him define fatherhood. You'll find yourself, I think, much more grace-giving towards where your earthly father comes up short. But you'll also find yourself rescued from some version of fatherhood that feels toxic or um, like it, like it crushes you because there's nothing about the fatherhood of God that is in any way short of what our need is. He, he is the father of fathers. He is who you need. So when the first thing Paul says is life in Christ means relating to God as father, I wanna say that the first, it's impossible to mine the depths of this truth because we could spend now the rest of our time talking about what it means to be children of a father who gives a rich inheritance or who allows you to be shaped into his image and likeness as a son or daughter becomes like their father. We could talk about his provision for us, his protection of us, his watching over us. We could talk about his gentle instruction. We could again and again and again, just we could just mine it for the next 
week after week after week. But I think the primary focus here in this text is the impersonal versus the personal. So when we think about life under the law, we think about life according to a, a written standard that is not personal, it is impersonal. And we come to it and we have to engage with it in order to change and grow and be shaped. But we come to a father and that's a very personal, we can call upon the sympathy of that father. We can call upon the instruction of that father. We can ask him for what we need and what does God say in what does Jesus teach us? If we ask our father for what he needs, he knows how to give good gifts. If we ask for bread, he does not give a stone. If we ask for fish, he does not give snakes. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. Now, maybe think about it this way. Here, this, this analogy works for me. If you're a musician, think about your life as meant to play a piece of music. And you have two options. Life under the law is like being handed a sheet of, a sheet of sheet music and being told, play the piece. And maybe you know a little bit about half notes and whole notes, and maybe you know your scales, maybe you don't, but you gotta figure out what to do just based on this piece of music in front of you. It's on a sheet of paper and it's just there. And it demands of you that you learn how to play this concerto. You better figure out how to play that piano. Life in Christ is like having the world's greatest piano teacher sit down with you and say, I'm gonna come and sit with you every day. And very tenderly and slowly and patiently, I'm gonna teach you how to play. And when you have a question, I'm right here, you ask me. When you need a little correction, I'll point out, no, don't put your hands here, put them there. No, don't use the pedals this way, use them that way. You know, if you sit this way, you're gonna have much better reach. You're gonna be able to do this. Let me talk to you about keys and pitch and let me, also that through this instructor, our lives become this beautiful piece of music. It's the difference between the impersonal and the personal. To be children of God is to be able to call upon a tender father who guides and instructs us. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing that we see is in verse 27 when he says, life in Christ is to be not life under the impersonal, but the personal children of God. But then in verse 27, he says this. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that phrase is really important. He's using the allusion, he's alluding to the idea of baptism. Every believer would go through the ritual, the rite of baptism, and going through it then, they would take off their old clothes, go under the water, be raised out of the water. This is a beautiful teaching about baptism. And then they would come out and they'd be put, they put on a new set of clothes. They'd put on a white robe. That's how in the ancient church often baptism was performed. And in putting on that white robe, what are they declaring? They are made new, they are restored, not because they just got baptized, but because this is a, a representation of what Christ has done in their inner person, in your inner person. And so when he says, everyone who's been baptized into Christ has put on Christ, what he's saying is you have been clothed in the person of Christ. Now, to illustrate this, I thought about bringing someone up in an Eagles jersey and exchanging it for a Cowboys jersey. But that analogy comes up short and some of you would hate that. And if that doesn't work, you just reverse it, okay? If you need help and all the Steelers fans said, we don't care. But the point is this, even that, that analogy, that, that visual image comes up short because we're not being told we're clothed in the clothing of Christ. We are told that we are clothed in Christ. Do you see how miraculous that is? This is a statement of identity. 
Life in Christ is to be given complete union with Christ so that he defines you completely and utterly. He has ushered you into himself and clothed you in his power, clothed you in his righteousness, clothed you in his mercy, clothed you in his love, clothed you in his wisdom, so that at any moment, that's what defines you. Do you know who you are? You belong to him and he has clothed you in himself. You are not under the law, striving to meet its demands. They have been met for you. And Christ so longs to identify with you. He so loves to call you his, that he said, I'm not just gonna put my clothes on you. I'm gonna put myself around you. Every moment of every day, when you're sleeping, when you're awake, when you're walking, when you're running, when you're working, when you're resting, you are clothed in me. I wonder how often you think about yourself that way. Years ago, we had these uh, WWJD bracelets. It was kind of a, a, a all the rage for a while. I don't know, maybe somebody people still has them or whatever. And I, I have no problem with those. It's fine. But it seemed to me that when I saw those and when we interacted around those, the idea was almost like, I'm gonna wear this as a reminder of all the things I'm not supposed to do. So that when I encounter a situation, I'm gonna say, what would Jesus do? And what I mean by that is kind of, how, how should I avoid sin? I'm gonna wear this thing as a reminder to avoid sin and not sinning is good, okay? But do you see that to put on Christ as the text tells us here is much more than just how do I not sin? It's to say I am the visible representation of Jesus everywhere I go. When you walk into Target tomorrow, Jesus is walking into Target because you're clothed in him, surrounded by him, encapsulated by him, subsumed by him. He is everything. He defines you. So the question, what would Jesus do is a valid question because he has clothed you in himself and you represent him now. Life in Christ. You see how different it is in life under the law? He treasures you. He's brought you into himself, clothed you in himself. You have a constant source of wisdom to draw from. You never, ever have to encounter a situation where you're at a loss because you can turn to him and say, pour your wisdom through me, please. I'm in you. Show me. And sometimes we come up short. But friends, do you see the resource that's available to you? So often we don't take up the resource that we have because we're clothed in him. The third thing that we see that we have in life in Christ is Again, we've, we've put on Christ, we are children of God, and now he's gonna say you're one in Christ. You have a union with Christ in such a way that you are one with one another through it. And he's gonna say across these three, it's very telling that the three lines of division he points out in this text are very common today, just like they were back then. Divided by ethnicity, divided by socioeconomic status, divided by gender. Is it a shock to anyone that these were present then and they're present now? This is what he says in verse 28. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek ethnicity. There's neither slave nor free in the ancient world. That would have very much been socioeconomic terms. There is no male and female. For you are all, what does it say, church? One in Christ Jesus. One in Christ Jesus. Now, he's just said you've put on Christ, you've been clothed in him, and now what he's saying is, and you're not the only one. When I took you into myself, when I clothed you in me, when I brought you into my very body, I was also bringing in people very much not like you, and you're in there together. And now I'm the one that defines you. Now, this text gets misused and abused all the time because it's used to teach like somehow that male and femaleness doesn't matter or that ethnicity doesn't matter, and that's not true. In fact, they are prized by God and treasured by him, but they are no longer meant to divide us the way that they do. Now, let me explain how that works. When you are under the law, you have to justify yourself by your own actions and by who you are. So anyone who's not like you has to be lesser than you, otherwise your identity is lessened. So I use any earthly category I can find, whether it be my ethnicity, I use it, or my socioeconomic status, or my gender, and I use it as a weapon against all those who don't share it. And if mine in any way is diminished, it diminishes me because I have to struggle and strive to justify myself by myself. But when I come into Christ, what Paul is saying is, he says there's no male or female. He doesn't mean there's no such thing as a man and a woman, okay? He doesn't mean there's no such thing as a Greek or as a Gentile or as a Jew. Those categories are God-given. But what he's saying is those things are no longer the thing that identifies you and gives you value and worth. They can't bear the weight of that, and they no longer do that. What does now? Christ. You have come into him. And when you've come into him now, all those things become lesser things. They do not carry ultimate weight and importance. They matter, but they do not ultimately matter. They are valuable, but they are not ultimately valuable. I no longer look at my ethnicity as the primary definer of who I am. I no longer look at my gender as the primary definer of who I am. I am in Christ. I have put him on. And now, rather than those things having to bear the weight of my identity and therefore me having to use those as a weapon against those who don't share them, I now say I am in Christ as they are in Christ. And because my ethnicity doesn't bear that weight, I now can receive those who have a different ethnicity because we are in Christ together. Does this make sense? We are in Christ together, one in Christ. And that's what defines me. Far above any other category, far above any other thing. And all those other lesser identities being subsumed by the identity I have and having put on Christ now makes me able to walk in oneness with people across gender distinctiveness across socioeconomic status, across ethnic status, and other dividing lines. These are just the three that Paul points out here and not by accident because they continue to be the dividing lines that seem to move through all of human experience down through the nations and the years. We are one in Christ. So let me just, let's do some self-examination here for a second. And just, we need to ask ourselves this question because the reason these get handed down in the scriptures and we still find them true today is because they're such important categories that they are the, where our sin takes us. Our sin divides us along these lines and it's gonna continue to do that so that we should expect it to be there. So then the question we have to ask and let the spirit examine us is, 
what is the attitude of my heart towards those who are different than me along ethnic lines, socioeconomic lines, and gender lines? Do I use it as a, do I find in my heart a mistrust or a, a, or a separating from, a desire to do that? Do I find animosity there? I'm just asking you to let the Spirit of God examine you. That's a fair thing to ask, yes? I say, what's there? What's there? Because I'm in Christ and they are in Christ and there should be no division between us along these lines. For those of us who are in Christ, there should be none. And yet there is, and the church has so often failed at this. Can we admit that? The church has so often failed at that, at this. We gotta keep putting, stepping forward into the righteousness of Christ, into his identity, so that we might walk in the fullness of what he has for us. Now, the last category, one with one another. Now, the last one is offspring and heirs. It's the last thing he wants to highlight about life in Christ, rather against life under the law. Verse 29, read it with me. And just a quick observation about this. Then in verse 29, he says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So there's two terms there, offspring and heirs. And here's what he means by that. We saw earlier in Galatians that when he calls us Abraham's offspring, he's saying everyone who's been justified by faith is Abraham's descendant. So if we remember all the way back to Genesis 15, God had made a promise to Abraham. So I'm gonna give you descendants as numerous. You're old and beyond childbearing years. You have no kids. I'm gonna give you a son and I'm gonna, in fact, give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's a pretty astounding promise. And then when we come to this text and Paul says, you are Abraham's offspring. What he's saying is you are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God made that promise. And now you, the fact that you're sitting here and you're in Christ, everyone who's been justified by faith has become Abraham's descendant. The fulfillment of the promise that God made to him. You're the evidence that God keeps his promises. The fact that you're sitting here today, if you're in Christ, you are the evidence of that. That means that you have joined the big story that God is telling. Life under the law is life all about myself. It's life about how to get myself right, make myself okay. You're so subsumed with that and the perfection required of you and the crushing weight of it. You can never look up and see that you're part of something bigger than yourself. But life in Christ is life as Abraham's offspring. It's life as one who is the fulfillment of a grand narrative, a grand plan that God has been working out. You're part of it. And then not only are you the offspring, the evidence that the promise has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled that God made to Abraham, you're also the heirs of that promise, which means you're the recipients of all its benefits. You're not just the evidence that the promise has been kept, you receive all the benefits of that promise. You are ushered into Christ. You are part of God's design. You are a child of his. Not just Abraham, you. All the benefits promised to Abraham now are handed to you. What does that mean? It means you're part of something way bigger than yourself and your whole life is meant to be given to it. You are in Christ, not under the law. So friends, we're gonna come to the table of the Lord now. We began our time. Let me say, um, servers, if you'll come, go ahead and come on up and our, our worshiping is gonna come up. Can I remind you, 
we began our, our time of worship by singing about the sufficiency of the cross, saying the cross, it's, it's more than enough, it, it's sufficient. And now we come to the table of the Lord where we reflect upon that cross. And as we partake of this, today in particular, I wanna encourage you to reflect upon ways that you might be returning towards those legalistic tendencies and to ask, am I returning to life under the law, to the old relationship, when the cross is sufficient to have purchased me and placed me in Christ, drawn me in? So friends, two things I always remind us of, um, for those of you who are in Christ, as we hold these elements, we're gonna take them together and I wanna invite you to examine yourself and to invite the Spirit to examine you. We've received the teaching of God's word now. We've declared his praise. And as we come to the table of the Lord, what he's instructed us to do whenever we do this is to not take it lightly, but to consider, Lord, are there any ways that my life is out of step with where you want it to be? And let him lead you and guide you in that. And it's the joy of the Spirit. No human person can tell you that, but the Spirit can guide you, and he will. For those of you who are not in Christ, you're haven't made that choice, that decision. We always say that we're glad that you're here. We're gonna invite you to let these elements pass and to use it as a time to weigh and consider what we believe is true, that Christ would be drawing you out from underneath the law and into being a child of God. But we are really declaring something when we take these elements. It's not just a ritual, not just a habit. We're declaring as we take the elements that we believe in the sufficiency of the blood of Christ to make payment for sin and to usher us out from underneath the law and into him. And if you haven't made that choice, if you don't believe that, we wouldn't want you to declare belief through your actions. So we'll invite you just to let the elements pass. So servers, if you come now, let's go to the table of the Lord together, church.